Welcome to coffeeis.me podcast, where me means you, or more precisely, us. This is the show where your host, Valerian, and Marcus, without using any interrogation techniques, convinces coffee professionals to reveal their secrets to teach and inspire you to make better coffee and earn a few bucks on the side, if that's what you fancy. Let the show begin. Hey coffee friends, Valerian here. Welcome to Coffee Is Me podcast. This is the second part with Umeko Motoyoshi. We had a lot of fun recording this podcast, so we decided to uh, divide it into two parts. Umeko is really awesome with Instagram. She is doing amazing job and we decided to pick her brain how to become a social media star like her. In the second part of this episode, we have a special, special treat for you. And we are going to talk about an experiment we did at the San Francisco Coffee Festival. Basically, we picked two coffees. One was an ultra, ultra fancy, very expensive Geisha. And the second was kind of a basic, but nice uh, Brazilian. And we gave it to people and asked them, what do they think? I think the results will surprise you. They definitely surprised us. What exactly happened? We're going to talk about it in around the minute 20. So if you're not really interested in the social media stuff, just zoom along and around minute 20, we start to talk about the coffee. We hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we enjoyed recording it for you. Cheers. You have like 12,000 followers on Instagram, something like that. It's almost 13,000 now. Yeah, 13,000. <laughs> Okay, awesome. Uh, so if I want to have 13,000 followers for my business, how do I do that? That's a great question. I, I, have, I have the followers that I have, I think, for an, a, a few different reasons. One, I, I have maintained my Instagram account as being really genuine to my own voice. So I've, there hasn't been a point where I've switched over to okay, now I have X number of followers, so I'm going to start projecting this more constructed version of my voice. And that's a choice that I've made personally for myself that is pretty vulnerable, so I wouldn't say that's, oh, you have to do that, because I think that's everyone's choice, how much of yourself you want to put out there. But I think that when someone is genuine, that is, it makes it easier for me to connect with that person. So I think that's part of it. Um, the other part is I, I really am a community-focused Instagram account. So it's not just about, like, here, here's what I think about this end of story. It's a lot more about engaging with people. And I think that I try to create a space that feels welcoming and safe for people to be a part of it. I respond to every single DM Wow, that okay. yeah i get uh, and i get sometimes depending on the day sometimes i'll get one or 200 dms and i respond to every single you're one you're kidding me how wow. many one or 200 <laughs> it, de- it depends on the day sometimes i can get more than that but i think that matters to people also because I, I think when you feel like there's someone who's real who's there who's who's listening to you and it's not just like a a random stranger or faceless entity, you know, on the internet. I think that makes a difference to people. That's what I, those are a few of my thoughts, but I, I also do social media consulting. So I have a whole, oh, okay. I have a so, whole suite of thoughts on this matter. <laughs> I bet. That's awesome though. It's, and I mean, I think like 
as you were just talking about your cupping spoons, right? Like you're able to talk about that on the podcast with vulnerability a little bit and that really comes through in your in your Instagram account as well. It's fascinating. And, and I can uh, vouch for the fact that you do answer your DMs. I did not know there are 200 because I think I sent you a DM a year ago, something like that, about my kitty, who is very similar to your kitty. So I was like, oh, it looks like Jolie and uh, his name is Chip, right? Yes. So, and you were like, oh yeah, that's cool. You know, I was like, should I send her the picture? Maybe not. I don't know. I mean, whatever. I did not know who you are. I was just like, oh, she has a kitty like me. Awesome. You know, <laughs> so, you know, coming back to the uh, Instagram, uh, how do you, uh, what do you think is the, your feed more important or is it the stories? Oh, that's a great question. I don't have bad questions. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I have a lot to learn from you. Uh, so the the I think there are different there are different goals that you can have for your Instagram account, and so the gallery is helpful for certain things, and the stories are helpful for other things. The gallery I think is great for giving someone a snapshot of what your Instagram account is is about. So when someone is deciding whether or not they want to follow you, they go to your they go to your uh, gallery and they see just kind of a bird's eye view of visually of the posts that you're making and they see your bio and they see uh, your highlights and they take that information and decide, okay, this is some content that I think I'm interested in or maybe I'm not interested in it. So you can really take, uh, you can really optimize what you have posted there to help people understand that more clearly. Okay. Stories, I think, are, I love stories. Stories are great for engaging with people and you don't have to be, it, it, you don't have to be so uh, visual and so like, okay, th- in t- this is, has to be just right and I have to really make them out. You can just kind of, it's more conversational, I feel. And uh, a lot of people feel a lot more comfortable engaging via stories, like responding to stories because it's not public, it's not like when you leave a comment on a gallery post where everyone can see it. If it's a story, you just reply and you know that no one's gonna see it and it doesn't feel so high pressure. So it's a lot more comfortable, I think, for people to engage that way. Okay. So um, I have a question because you do consulting and I'm going to use this podcast as a free consulting for my situation. <laughs> this is the reason Valerian has podcast. Of course. I always, I was always open about that by the way. <laughs> so I, you know, uh, my case, like I'm into so many things. Uh, I'm into wine and I'm into uh, bread. I'm into coffee and I have my personal life, which I like to also share as a uh, good uh, exhibitionist. Um, so, I have accounts for all of them because I felt that when people visited, let's say, Valerian Coffee, it's my Instagram, it, it was kind of confusing that what is this guy all about? Is it a smart choice or a stupid choice? Because obviously on other accounts, I have like 200 followers, you know, and stuff like that. What do you think? Is it a smart choice to have separate your separate accounts for separate different account. hobbies? Let's say. So how many accounts do you have? So I, well, plus brands, I have like five. Five accounts. And how many followers do you have on those accounts? So Green Plantation has 3,000. Unleash Coffee has 1,200. Mine is like 1,200. Uh, the bread is like 200. The wine is 200. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's helpful to know. So I, 
To me, I think it really depends on what your goals are for each of those individual accounts. Okay. So do you have, uh, do you have different goals for those accounts is one, it sounds like one is one or two or more your professional accounts and the other ones are more hobby, right? Right. So for your professional accounts, your goals are probably more oriented toward growth and sales, right? Yeah. Okay. So you, I think it makes sense to have those separated into their own accounts. If you have your coffee account and you're posting a bunch of photos of bread, then that is confusing for someone when they're looking at your account and deciding whether or not to follow you because they're thinking, okay, well, do I need to follow a coffee and bread account? I don't know. But they will say, oh, this is a coffee account. Do I need to follow a coffee account? Yes, I'm working coffee. G gonna do it, right? So I think that having them separated out is a smart idea for the sake of the growth and sales goals that you have associated with your business accounts. Okay. And for your personal accounts, just do whatever you want. If it's your hobby account, if it's your personal account, I think just have fun with it. And if you want to start growing those accounts and want to get more followers on your bread account, for example, then you're already kind of set up for that success. So I think it's great and it just really depends on your goals. Also depends on how much effort you and work you're willing to put into maintaining all of right. this. Yeah, that's, that's a hard part. Uh, one more question about influencers. So there's so many, you know, so much talk about influencers and how brands should work with influencers. Uh, my personal experience is that, you know, I'm not sure if they can do anything for my brand really, uh, because obviously for me, it's always important to sell, let's say coffee, right? So, you know, if I, if I give money to influencer, I want to make whatever I give to that influencer plus more, right? That would be the logical thing for me as a business owner. How Very do you see Capricorn. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so how do you see that? A cancer. Uh, right. Okay. So as a triple cancer, speaking with a triple Capricorn, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I totally, actually, I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. Okay. I think, again, it comes down to, to your goals. And I, I also, so if your goals are to grow sales, I think it can't, it can't hurt to try working with influencers if that's what you want to, if that's something you want to try it can be harder to track return on, on that investment if you're paying an influencer a certain amount of money. So that's why influencers often have a discount code because you can track how many people use that, that discount code. But when you start using discount codes, it really comes across as paid and artificial. Right. And the appeal of an influencer is that it's, it's a person and influencers work because they're trusted by mm -hmm. the circle of people that follow them. So that's a catch 22 kind of, in my opinion, I think that for me working with micro influencers is something that can be really helpful because you're not investing like a ton of money for someone who has like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of followers. Right. Um, so it's, it's a lower risk investment and you have someone also who has pretty close established trust. Once you have an influencer who has 100,000 followers or whatever, maybe they might have a lot of followers, but the followers don't necessarily have a lot of trust in them. So that's, that's one thing. The other thing is when you're working with influencers, you need to be very structured about 
how they're presenting whatever product that you, whatever product you give them, right? So if you just say, okay, here's a product, make a post about it. A lot of the time the influencer will make a post that doesn't contain any of the messaging that's important to your brand. And they'll post it at, at like midnight on a Sunday and it's just not going to align necessarily with how you want to optimize that investment. So being, so a lot of it is not just about the influencer. It's your responsibility to set the influencer up for success. So I, I, in my opinion, I think working with influencers can be valuable when you are really working together in a relationship and not just saying, here's a product, Mm. sell it, here's your money, discount code, Whatever, And you also do need to have some willingness to accept that you're not necessarily, unless you're using a discount code, you're not going to be able to track necessarily. I got X number of sales from this, you know, this post, right? Gotcha. So let's say again, a triple Capricorn asking uh, triple cancer, <laughs> uh, very practical question of like, let's say Marcus here wants to find a micro-influencer. He identifies, let's say, three, four, five people, how he goes about to contact them and what he should expect to pay them or exchange them or how, how does it really work with a micro-influencer? With a micro-influencer. So I, so I personally, I get, I do not receive any payment for any product promotion. And I do think that, I do wish that, <laughs> I do wish that brands felt more, I wish brands led with that, you know, I wish that brands, I, I feel like a lot of brands kind of take advantage of micro influencers basically and say like, oh, we're going to send you this free product and just make a post about it. And that to me feels disingenuous because you're really, it's a service that this person mm-hmm. is providing for you. So uh, one, I think offering money just at all is, is good. That's a good first step um, because it's respectful and that also it, it lends toward the relationship that you want to have, right? Um, so, oh, sorry. I am so caffeinated now. I forgot what your question was that I was just <laughs> in the middle of answering. No, how, how you go about contacting a micro-influencer oh, right. and what okay. you should offer them. Yeah, okay, you said that right. you should offer some money. If you can tell us how much, it would be great. Right, okay. So I, you know, I think that really depends. So there are some different structures that you can use. If you're doing a dis- discount code, then you would say like, you know, X amount per use. And it just depends so much. I really hesitate to put a number out there because it varies so much based on how much of a value you are placing on this service based on like the, you know, the return that you want to see. Right. And And the value, the possible spin for a bag of coffee is very different than for a $2,000 course. Sure. Right. Sure. It's very different. That makes sense. Sure. And it just, you know, it's, it's kind of like, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't give you a recommendation for how much to pay any one okay. of your employees. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Right. Yeah. 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 Sure. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm just, because, you know, many times I think people are kind of, they're scared to contact them. You know, it's like, oh, what shall I offer them? I don't want to lose them. I don't want to not answer me. Maybe I offend them. At least that's my approach. You know, I'm, I'm sure that there are people who are, have no problem, you know, to do that. I am brazenly approached by people asking for my labor for free every single day, all day. We did that today. <laughs> <laughs> right. But um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think you can also always ask, right? Just say, hey, we're interested in whatever. You know, what does that look like from your end, right? Let people kind of respond back on their terms a little bit. I mean, it's not like we're buying a used car. It's not like the first one to throw out a number loses, right? It's That's a very good point. It's a relationship that you want to build. It's a very good point. That's so, still my European shyness here. You know, I still, I'm still living here 10 years and I'm still kind of like shy a little bit. I'm working on it though. 100 yeah, yeah, yeah okay i wouldn't i wouldn't say you're shy so success i'm still scared to exit like i don't know anyhow sorry i interrupted you oh it's so cute i i think that's a really good point when you're if you're if you're shy it's hard to approach anyone to ask about anything and particularly when money is involved yeah i think if you're working with micro influencers offering any money at all is a it's very that's a very great first step and the amount of money that you offer, like, you know, like Marcus is saying, I think it should be, it's like something that you can negotiate. Just like if you're negotiating salary with an employee that you want to hire, I would approach it in a very similar way. One more thing uh, before we wrap up uh, the social media thing is that um, Green Plantation, the Slovak uh, companies, we are approached many times by the influencers themselves which is kind of cool. Solaka is a market which is 5 million, so usually these followers, you know, they have like 1,000 or whatever, you know. And what I noticed is that many of them have, let's say, 3,000 followers, but if I look at their posts, they're kind of like, eh, you know, nothing special. And especially their likes and the comments are minimal. So these guys are buying their, uh, most likely they're buying their uh, followers. So what's your take on that? How can a company make sure that they are not falling in the trap of a fake influencer? That's a really great question. It, it, it also can be hard to, it, it, it is really helpful to compare the number of followers with the number of likes that you're receiving. It, it's not the entire story because you can have a lot of followers but post content that isn't engaging to your followers or you could have a lot of followers, but you're not optimizing how and when you post, so your posts aren't showing up for your followers. So it can be that part of the story as well, but it does, if you have thousands and thousands and thousands of followers and your posts get, you know, like 20 likes, that is kind of a, a red flag. Um, generally, when you're assessing any influencer who approaches you, you wanna look at, you want to ask them what their, you know, what kind of followers they have, right? And a lot of the influencers who have fake follower bases, they won't have valuable information for you or information that really aligns with what you need because you're looking for people who, you're looking for an audience that's probably specialty coffee drinkers, right? Okay. Yeah. I would assume. Yeah. So if you talk to a fake influencer and say who's your audience and they say coffee lovers and then that's sort of like okay when you start digging though for more then you'll find out information about what like what that means to them and what they mean by that also when you're just assessing how valuable the page is to you you can look at the posts that are similar to what they say they would make about you and just see the engagement on those posts. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of assess whether or not to work with an influencer based on looking at their paid, looking at their audience, right? And looking at 
the success of the posts they're making that are similar to the posts they would make about you. And you don't even actually need to figure out if they're real influencers or not, because if they're fake influencers, those won't even really be mm. like, those won't even really match up to what you're looking for anyways. But are they deleting them? Like uh, what I got offers, for example, is that, oh, for three days or one day or a week, I post it for X, Y, Z. So then it's kind of hard to check out what kind of uh, post they would make about me. Right? Yeah, there are influencers that do that also. I've, they're, they're, I've seen both. If it's an influencer who's saying, oh, they're going to delete after a couple days or whatever, I just don't. It's like, I, I feel like those are just not like very valuable uh, pursuits, I would say. I think when you have an influencer relationship, it's a lot different and you'll get a lot more return from it than if you are working with someone who they make money from just posting products, which is totally fine. Um, but they don't really care about you. They don't care about your brand. They don't care about their company, your company. They don't, it's, it's very whatever to them and they're just going to like delete it. So I think it just, when you're approached in that way, it often does, it often comes across and feels disingenuous. And if it feels like that in any business relationship, you don't want to pursue it. Right. And that's right. I mean, is that the, the kind of the difference between the influencer and a micro influencer? Right. That's the level of focus and target for what you're doing, I think. Right. I think so. Cool. Yeah. Uh, now let's return the favor. Uh, let's talk about your book, about your cupping spoons and where people can find you. So let's start with the book because I saw it once and then it disappeared. We had it, a copy here. It got stolen, oh. <laughs> which is a good sign. I mean, if students or clients are here and excited about it and they disappear, I will just order another one. Let, let's just call it that they took it by accident. Yeah, they were inspired by it. Yeah, exactly. Because you use the word stolen. Our students never steal anything. No, of course, of course. They're inspired. <laughs> I was going to bring you a copy of the book, and I was, uh, but then I thought, oh, they already have a copy. Darn it. Oh, well, we, we'll see you around. <laughs> so tell us about you. the book. Why yes. is it different? Uh, I wrote a book uh, called Not Wasting Coffee, and it's about not wasting coffee. And it addresses the... Uh, pattern and attitude that uh, a lot of us have noticed in our industry that really normalizes the waste of our product. And as an example, latte art throwdowns are really huge in coffee culture. And it's kind of one of, it's kind of the biggest way that people who work in coffee get together as a community. And it involves pouring a bunch of lattes and then throwing them away, which is very, very wasteful. And that's kind of one example of how we as an industry normalize the waste of this product that is extremely valuable and that there's, and there's so much work that goes into creating this product as, as we know. So I feel like this, this is a pretty big problem and we as an industry need to focus more on really recognizing and acknowledging the value of our product and uh, behaving accordingly, you know, behaving appropriately. And I wrote a book about it. So it starts with green buying practices and um, the idea of waste to me is uh, it's waste is kind of a shorthand word that is accessible to people. But the idea that I'm really thinking about is to me, not wasting starts with how we think about things and it starts with recognizing value. 
So I start with green buying practices where I think the waste is when we don't recognize the value of 80 to 84 point coffees. And those coffees are treated like they're worthless, <laughs> but it takes so much to produce them. It's so much labor, as we know, that goes into producing an 84 point coffee. So, And back to our tasting and which coffees people might actually want to drink the most of for your mom, my dad, the typical consumer? Oh, it's uh, the, the uh, San Francisco coffee festival effect. Let's talk about it after she finishes the book because I think that's super, that was awesome. Yes, I, let's totally talk about that. Perfect. So, so yes, Marcus, completely. And, we're, and these coffees often offer a profile that's preferred by our, our customers, by coffee drinkers. So recognizing the value of those coffees and recognizing the value of our cu customers' preferences, right? Um, so from there, I move into extraction, which is where I see also a lot of waste occur because to me, when we have this product that we've paid, you know, we've paid for and there's a lot of work that goes into it and then our espresso program involves brewing espresso shots that have maybe a 12% extraction yield. That is shocking to me, honestly, because it's our, I mean, it just, it raises operational costs by so much. And then you're just going through all this coffee and just churning out these shots that are comprised of like half of what you could be extracting from the, from the material. It's, it's like if you had a pastry program where you were buying the flour and then you just threw away half of the flour. It's just like, to me, it's, it's really, it's, and it, it's not something that I think people do on purpose. I want to be clear about that. And I think a lot of the reason why we see this kind of waste occur where people are just not extracting enough from their coffee uh, is because the information around extraction is very gate-kept. So I explore extraction and roasting for a high extraction and brewing for a high extraction in a way that is as accessible as possible. So then from there, go into like cafe practices, brewing the coffee, um, and what do you do with like leftover batch brew, and what do you do about latte art throwdowns, and what do you do about like, you know, all these kind of things that align a lot more closely with the idea of what people think of when they're like, oh, wasting coffee, not wasting coffee. But the foundation of the book is actually a lot, it's not so literal. The idea is a lot more about here are these foundational pieces that need to be in place before we move on to like, then how do we recycle the grounds to grow mushrooms in them? Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I was so impressed by the book when I started reading it because yeah, it wasn't about wasting. It was about business operations. It was a book that I thought could be used as a workbook in some ways to inspire a roaster to try a different approach or a cafe to you know, not be afraid of brewing at 19 to one or some, you know, sort of higher volume ratio and look at extracting more. Where can we, where can we buy it? It is available for purchase on umeshiso.com. That's my website. It's U-M-E-S-H-I-S-O.com. We'll put that link on the podcast page as well. Yeah. Show notes. And yeah, that, that's, that's easy. So people can go to coffeeis.me and uh, under the show notes, we're going to have a link to the, your website where you can get the book 
and the cupping spoons, right? Yes. Which are super awesome. Thank and, you. And it's because, not because I'm saying that, but because people really like gravitate towards them. We have, just to understand you guys, uh, we have these giant bowl of different cupping spoons and there are different brands, you know, different uh, shapes and sizes. It's, it's kind of awesome. You can go through that and pick and people really go for those kind of colorful, fun uh, cupping spoons. So it's, it's kind of cool. Yeah, it's amazing. Let's talk a little bit about these uh, Coffee Fest uh, thing, what happened. Yes. Yeah, so the Coffee Fest effect. Um, this was at the San Francisco Coffee Festival where we decided to have a booth, which is really cool because we don't get to like talk to consumers very often. And, you know, we have the Sidium Inside Baseball where we're kind of always just talking to other professionals. So it was awesome. We had, I don't know, their, their estimates were what, like 10,000 attendees? That's what I heard. Yeah. I, it, whatever it was, it was busy the whole time. It was nonstop. It was um, wild. I just remember these like door opens and rah, relax. <laughs> yes. Door like. opens, rah. You know, it's like, <laughs> I was so tired. It was Good so, job. And it was so different from a regular trade show where 90% of the people are just trying to ignore you because they don't want to get trapped into a sales conversation. This was 90% of the people wanted to be like trapped and, and brought in. It was awesome. Um, but we, because we're an education place that we do something kind of fun and, you know, Valerian really put this together and led the charge of having just a simple taste coffee, a taste coffee, B engage them in a discussion of, you know, which coffee do you think is the more expensive coffee? I think that's pretty good shorthand for quality for an average consumer. Um, and which one do you prefer? You know, no right or wrong answer. This is just fun. It was kind of nice market research for us. And you know, we had a lot of different coffees through and the week. And email harvesting. Oh, yes, and email <laughs> harvesting. We collected a stack of business cards with email addresses that was like six inches high. <laughs> so win. Nice. <laughs> um, but it was great because we had like the Lamula that we drank first thing, and we had the Unleashed that we drank as the third coffee. And two totally different coffees, two great coffees. We actually had a nice visual representation where we could say, you know, these coffees are valued about 10 times different from one another. You know, we figure about $15 for the bag of Unleashed and about $150 for a similar size bag of La Mula. $10 for Unleashed right now. Okay, $10 for Unleashed. <laughs> it's the bargain of coffee. It's amazing. Right now, yeah. We have to get rid of the old harvest. Yeah. That's one. That doesn't taste old. No. So, um, but it was great because I'd say at least 80% of the people, maybe more, when we asked them this, preferred the Unleashed, the Brazilian coffee that had that hazelnut, chocolate, caramel, big body, kind of round. That was it. And the Lamula, unless you could sort of see they were like a pretty serious coffee geek, which is awesome, but people just didn't get it. But you have to, you forgot to mention that this was blind. So in the beginning, they did not know what, which one is which. Yep, it was just a cup A, cup B. A, B. Yeah, and they had to kind of come up like, and we, I was shocked because I knew that some people would prefer Brazilian kind of simple profile. That was actually Mundo, Mundo Nova, which is much lower in acidity than, you know, this was a, a Katukai Red. And it's just very basic, like, I always call it the Nutella of coffee because it's like hazelnuts, chocolate, you know, kind of nice body done, you know, no, no, not thinking too much. 
And I was, especially on a uh, coffee festival, I was expecting that coffee geeks come and they all will prefer the geisha and we were kind of like, oh yeah, you know this. And I was like, whoa, 70% people preferred the... Oh, more than, I'd say it was 80 to 90%. And yeah, they, everybody spent 25 to $75 to come. They're just mm-hmm. coffee consumers. It was so cool. Why is that? That's and what question. did you see? Because you were kind of hanging out with Jen at the Mother Tongue setup. Like, what was the kind of vibe of coffees people were drawn to there? First of all, I just love that experiment. I love that <laughs> test so much. <laughs> and I actually, I have some questions about that test that I would like to circle back to. Let's do it, yeah. So for to answer your question, my experience at Jen's booth was we sold a lot of coffees that fall more in the... Uh, medium uh, medium roasted. We didn't have anything that was super dark roasted, but Jen does offer a broad spectrum. Um, we heard customers... What I saw a lot was uh, c- customers would taste the different coffees. They would like the more medium roasted coffees. They would like those, and then once they decided they wanted to buy that, they also would then be more willing to take a risk on the lighter roasted coffees that they'd tried before. Hmm. This is not sci- like this is not science. This is anecdotally, this is what it seemed like I saw happening. I think a huge thing that so and Jen. So oh, sorry, backing up. I was at the Mother Tongue Coffee booth, and I was sharing a booth with Jen Apodaca, who is one of the greatest coffee roasters in the world. And yep, Jen's is, a legend, 100%. She, she's just, yeah, she's teaching me how to roast right now, and I, it's like, she's amazing. Cool. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, so the coffee that we were offering was just stellar for, you know, customers were really, really enjoying it because it's Jen picking the coffee and roasting it. And uh, again, I lost my train of thought because um, I'm really over-caffeinated. But, oh, the Jen is really great with people. So that made a huge difference because they would approach the booth and before they even tasted the coffee, they were having a really nice experience because they were talking with Jen and they were talking with you know, other people who were working with the, at the booth who were giving them a lot of like information in a friendly way about the coffee. So And dancing. There was dancing, so much dancing at the booth, dancing. which made me so <laughs> happy. It was my <laughs> little dance break as well, which it, it just draws people in, right? It's cool. Totally. It was so cool. Yeah, so they had this like kind of holistic experience that I think was really nice. But we ended up selling a lot of coffee that what ran the gamut from like the lighter, lighter roasted single origin Kenya to the the blend that's a darker or medium dark roast. Cool. That's you said great. you have questions towards us with the experiment. Yes, I am curious about the language that your customers used when they were tasting and describing the the two different coffees. How did they tend to describe the uh, Brazil and how did they tend to describe the Gesha? Uh, the Gesha was acidic right away. That was the first thing. It's too high in acids, acidic, you know, sour. Yeah. And, it, and it's important to note, these coffees were roasted quite similarly too. Mm-hmm. And so we weren't dealing with a big difference in roast level. They were both you know, kind of a little bit past like the midpoint between first and second crack. They weren't at second crack though so no i take uh take the um so on geese and the second crack would start at 224 celsius and uh our middle um like middle roast 
would go around 212 Celsius. So there's a big space between them. Yep. So it's like, you know, I would say almost it's like medium light. We had to call it medium because we realized people are scared of the light roast. So we call it like, oh, it's medium roast. So that was, and an, 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 uh, an the Brazil, uh, they called it uh, full bodied. They always went for the body and chocolatey. The first descriptor was almost always body. Body, yeah. That's what they went for. So it's interesting that, you know, what I think consumers mind is a high acidity. It's right away they pick it up and without even thinking like, okay, how this acidity works with the rest of the story, they just like, oh, this acidity can block right away. And, but they feel very comfortable with uh, full bodies. So where does this take us with the 89 and 90 whatever coffees? Because when you said that all oh, people kind of uh, complain about 80, 84, I'm like, that's not really fair. Actually, I hate to give scores. In Green Plantation, for example, the Slovak company, we have already like seven years of history selling coffee. And I tell you, Brazils are the best-selling coffees. The second best-selling coffee we usually have is a basic Colombian. We have very fancy Colombian ones, and the price is very, very similar. People pick the basic Colombians and the Brazils, which score up to 85. So what shall we do now? You know. And this goes hand-in-hand hand with like Eric Avani's reported SCA last year about trade coffees sales and what roasters should focus on, which is darker than you think, profiles more in the chocolate and heavier body. I'm totally butchering my summary of it, but I think that's kind of the gist more or less of, of what she says. And yeah, and we saw that played out ourselves as well. And I have to say that the green plantation is a specialty roaster. We specialize in, it's not like, you know, our niche coffee is like we sell the you know, Brazilian for our farm, you know, stuff. The, we, we have a specialty coffee clients focusing on filter coffees in Europe, which is also like a craziness because Europe is so heavy on espresso. And yet, people still, even on filters, prefer the Brazils and basic coffees. And, and this is my anecdotal experience with the students here. You know, it's 300 roasters and things that are coming through here. And, and I always kind of pull them and say, what's your best-selling coffee? And the folks that kind of have established companies, it's almost always a blend or a darker roast, a French roast. I think if you went and asked Stumptown what's their best-selling coffee, it's going to be Hairbender. If you do that with mm -hmm. a lot of companies, it's it's going to be surprising because when I worked at Blue Bottle, that was those were the bags of retail coffee that we sold out of right away when I worked in the cafe. Or like a Hayes Valley or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a yeah. little bit darker, super balanced. Yeah. So, I mean, that's maybe that's one of the. In addition to the social media tips, that's kind of the business takeaway for listeners is think about what your customers want and these coffees can really drive your ability to do the more, I don't know, exotic coffees or whatever you want to call them. But. Absolutely. I, I, for me personally, I really hope that the coffee industry will become less preoccupied with what our peers and our colleagues think of us and more focused on what our customers and our consumers enjoy. There's, I think a lot of people in coffee are, are very image conscious, but they're thinking about what, like, what other coffee roasters or other coffee professionals think. And it's understandable, you want your peers to think you're cool, right? Um, but we're not really going to make the strides forward that we need to make when we're so held back by this obsession with offering these coffees that we think are going to impress all of our coffee nerd friends. 100%. Yeah. I, I've always, when I've been a buyer, my buying strategy has always been like buy 
fewer coffees, but more of them, right? You're a better buyer, a better customer of the farmers you're working with. And boy, if you can build your company to a point where you're buying containers, that's rad, right? Like buy a container of the 83 point coffees as a blend base or a private label base or whatever. And then there, you can always throw 10 bags of some crazy lot in there to kind of impress the community sure. to compete with, to do whatever. But it's like all these producers that they work awfully hard, as you said, to kind of move that needle from 78 to 80 points or 82 points. And let's celebrate that coffee. Beautiful thoughts for the end of the podcast. So thank you so much, Umeko, for being here. This was really awesome. Thank you for yeah, having me. So fun. I had so much fun. We did too. Actually, I did. I don't know. Did you have fun, Marcus? I, it was, <laughs> yeah, had a great time. <laughs> did did, did yeah. we survive without wine? I think so. We're looking at a lot of wine this week as we go into the, the U.S. Thanksgiving holiday. So <laughs> yeah, but we can uh, do without it this morning. But don't forget, on 14th of December, we have the event here at Boot Coffee. So come and join us for wine and I'm going to make some sourdough creation, maybe Hungarian pogacha, maybe bread. I don't know yet, but it would be like fun. Coffee is me podcast open house. Open house. That's yeah. really fun. So we're we going to maybe even dance. I don't know. Shall we? I love it. <laughs> Perfect. All right. It's a wrap. Bye. 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 Bye.